Hello, Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, Jack Miles is here. He is a scholar of world religions and has edited the Norton Anthology of World Religions. Volume 1, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism. Volume 2, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It's a box edition of more religions than you can shake a stick at, and he is here to discuss it with us. Ryan Gaddis is the author of All Involved, one of my favorite books of the year. He comes back to the show to give us a book recommendation. I'm in the studio myself today. Tom is in Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, if I uh, am getting my geography right, on his uh, constant uh, perambulation around the world. And Lori is home, presumably working on her Oscar Hammerstein biography. So I will be uh, your solo host through the radio hour today. First, we're going to go to the Jack Miles interview, which we did a couple of weeks ago. Let's listen. Jack Miles is one of the leading scholars of world religion. He's on the faculty of UC Irvine, and he is the general editor of the Norton Anthology of Religion. We are really thrilled to have you here. Jack, welcome to the show. Pleasure to join you. So to get this discussion off and running, you've edited this vast study, and I'm fascinated. How does a scholar systematize such a gigantic subject? Well, it is a reference work, and in some ways, reference works attempt to systematize what is already known. So you don't want to depart too drastically from what might be a consensus of what the major religions of the world are. But there there are some decisions to be made at the margins, and there's also then a chronological decision. Do you anthologize primary texts from these religions from origins to the present or from origins to some point close to the present or midway in the past, such as the beginning of modernity. We decided to go from origins all the way into the 21st century. And the religions that we anthologized uh, were Hinduism, Buddhism, not controversial choices, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, not too controversial, although there is one puzzle in there. And Taoism, which is the trickiest one of all, because some said if you're talking about China, you should talk about Confucianism. Some said you shouldn't name a religion, but just say China and let China be itself hmm. and and revert to the geographical. But uh, we decided that uh, we would treat Confucianism as a philosophy and handle Chinese Buddhism under the general heading of Buddhism because Buddhism is an international religion represented on various uh, countries, even various continents. Now, when Tom and I were, uh, and Laurie, were talking about this segment before you came in, Tom mentioned that there had been some debate as to whether to include Judaism in the anthology for the simple reason that there just weren't enough Jews in the world. And yet it wound up being included. And I wonder if you could perhaps walk us through that entire process. Our shorthand criterion for inclusion was that a religion had to be A, major, and that meant demographically major, B, living, so ancient Greco-Roman religion was not included, 
and C, international. Now, Judaism qualifies on two of the three, but demographically it doesn't qualify. So if that were a decisive consideration, it could have been actually ruled out. But you cannot begin to understand either Judaism or Islam without a prior understanding of uh, Israelite religion from which rabbinic Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all descended. So uh, we had to include uh, Judaism. And then after all, we live in the United States of America where you wouldn't dare exclude Judaism, <laughs> would you? No. Absolutely not. Yeah. So what's the best religion? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, my, uh, my Buddhism editor will unhesitatingly uh, answer Buddhist, but since I'm receiving this question from a woman, I will note for you that Buddhism is the least feminist of all the religions. Interesting. We had uh, we had the hardest time finding any text. In fact, I really don't think we found any. Uh, maybe something in in modern times by a woman, a Buddhist. There are, of course, many female uh, Buddhists. My editor at the Norton Anthology of uh, W.W. Norton and Company, rather. Uh, in New York is a woman, and she was always uh, pushing us to have more uh, by women. And it was just impossible to find such texts for Buddhism. But uh, Donald Lopez, the Buddhism editor, still unhesitatingly declares Buddhism the world's best religion. Why do you think Buddhism has gained such a foothold in North America? I was taken to see Pema Chodron at UCLA recently, who's a Buddhist nun who's written many books. I'm sure you're familiar with her work. And Royce Hall, was. there were people hanging from the rafters. Don says that uh, Western Buddhism is a new variety of, uh, of Buddhism. It's significantly different from earlier varieties. It's not really in total continuity with Siddhartha Gautama at all. Nonetheless, it has responded to certain needs. And I would say, and I speak partly from a personal experience here, that if you have difficulty believing in God, there is a way to construe Buddhism as atheist. And yet the mood that hovers about it is a mood of devotion and piety and high morality, and that combination appeals to many people. I think it also uh, appeals sometimes the more if some of the ritual trappings are not excluded. Once uh, the enormous popularity of the Dalai Lama, who never appears other than in his saffron uh, robe and sandals, and who ends his public appearances by giving every one of those who have been with him a stole, and they, they hold their hands together in the namaste gesture and bow down and get the stole from the Dalai Lama, something they might not that readily do with the Pope, but mm. they'll do it with the Dalai Lama. You know, I was in Tibet recently, and I, w I had grown up as a hippie, so I, of course I was a Buddhist mm. um, in part, the way we right. all were, and I read East Zen, Western Zen, the Beat Zen, all of these these mm -hmm. kinds of um, screeds against the Western materialist, mm -hmm. achievement oriented. Right. You know, you're gonna get, I'm gonna hit Nirvana before you do. Kind mm -hmm. of, you know, the, all this kind of talk about why Westerners could never be decent Buddhists. Mm -hmm. Then I got to Tibet, and I thought that Tibetan Buddhism was disgusting. I, sh I probably shouldn't say this, but no, I mean, it was, uh, it, I wanted to nail 95 theses on the wall of the Zhokang Temple. Hmm. It was, uh, poor people were coming in from the country, throwing money at the feet of statues. Monks were raking it up. Mm -hmm. The monks had the best digs in town. And, uh, and it just looked to me like a con game. It looked like Scientology. I shouldn't say that either. And I thought that there's something about Western Zen 
which is much purer. That is, there are a lot of people that think it's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. That's what it's about. Mm-hmm. And they don't need the trappings. They, it is a non-theistic philosophy, of a moral philosophy that works for people. You might call it a, a Protestant uh, form of Zen, what we have here, yeah. a purification of the uh, of the corrupt Catholic versions that live on in the old world. That was exactly my my sense. Is that is that fair? Yeah, to a point, I think it is. Uh, and but I'd have to also point out that the that the critique you're offering is also the critique offered by the communist uh, Chinese government. Uh, and its excuse for moving in and and taking over the country. Uh, we agree about so many things. <laughs> you, uh, and the you, and, you and you and Mao have always been close. <laughs> that's right. So, well, Jack, yeah. how do you how do you come to this subject? What's your own background? Well, I was raised a lower class, lower working class, blue collar background in Chicago, and born Roman Catholic. My grandparents Irish uh, on my mother's side. I'm a citizen of Ireland, and in my community, men did not have careers. No one had a college degree. And when I went to a Jesuit high school, I was entranced by the Jesuits. There were men who did have a career. I had grown very well aware that my community was quite parochial, and these men were internationalists. They were highly cultivated, and they had uh, that esprit de corps that always attracts uh, young men. They were, they were something you could join. So I would say I joined the Jesuits first and took Catholicism as part of the bargain. But you can't really do it that way, can you? You know. And so after a number of years as a member of the order, I felt I had to resign. I couldn't authentically uh, remain. So you were a Jesuit priest? I was never ordained a priest. It was like being in the Air Force without being a pilot. Had I remained, I would have become a priest about, about two, three years uh, later. Mm. I discovered years later that the motto of the French Foreign Legion is Legio Patria Mea. The Legion is my fatherland, which you might think isn't can't be true. It has to be France is my fatherland. Right, you would think. But it was the Legion that came first and France second. Mm-hmm. So it was the, the Society of Jesus came first for me and the Church second. And then when I left the order, it was when I entered my semi-Buddhist period, you know, uh, yeah. as you say, like so many of us. And was was uh, drawn to that. You know, this was the early '70s. Back in the '50s, we had the Dharma bums, you know, in Ginsburg and Kerouac, and Gary Snyder, quite a serious uh, Buddhist and a and a great American poet. And it was really in the '70s that New York Publishing discovered Eastern religions. Shambhala Press uh, came into existence uh, at that time, and it has somewhat faded, um, or you might say, it has gone from the from the charismatic, daring uh, phase into the what Max Weber called the stage of routinization. And you have established Zen centers that can, however, muster very large crowds for a really attractive speaker, as you discovered at UCLA the other night. As you travel around the country and the world talking about these issues, I'm assuming that people want to talk about Islam and that perhaps the most contentious conversations you have involve this subject. What are you finding? Like, what are the most common misperceptions that people have? What are you finding out there? What are people thinking about Islam in America that, who are not Islamic? Not our Muslims. Yeah. Of course, Islam was intensely uh, on our minds. And I would say that 9-11 had a very serious role to play in the very genesis of this book. Uh, it was because of the impact that that incident had in 
in saying religion is has not gone away; it's here to stay, and can can even be here in, in a very dangerous way. That led Roby Harrington, the the head of the college division, to decide that uh, Norton, which had not been active as a publisher in religion, would become active and would begin with its signature product, the Norton Anthology. And yes, people do always ask about uh, Islam um, and violence, and there's no denying that ISIS and al-Qaeda do indeed draw inspiration from the passages that they choose to focus on uh, in the Quran. But I uh, spoke, there was a, a convention at which a new translation with commentary produced by uh, Muslim scholars in this country opened, and the general editor of that said, there is no book of Joshua in the Islamic tradition, and the book of Joshua commands a genocide on the part of the invading Israelites against the Canaanites, extermination down to the last man, woman, and child in the central area that the Israelites are to occupy. So you can find texts of that sort in every religious tradition. You can certainly find them in the Book of Revelation in Christianity and in later declarations like the Proclamation of the Crusades. So the question is, which portions of your tradition do you activate? And which do you deactivate? And at any given time, any tradition you can point to is in the process of activating something and deactivating something else. Mm. And what you need to do then in order to resolve a problem like the one we face now is find your friends and draw them close and strengthen them and form an alliance rather than hunt down your enemies and try to, to blot them out to the last one. Mm. That's what we have done so ineffectively, I would say is ally ourselves effectively with the many Muslims who would be only too happily our allies. This is Seth Greenland for the LARB Radio Hour. I am usually here with Lori Weiner and Tom Lutz, although I am alone in the studio today. Coming to you from Emerson College, KPFK 90.7 on your FM dial. You are listening to our interview with Jack Miles. Coming up is the author of All Involved, Ryan Gaddis. He has a book recommendation. Let's check it out. Ryan Gaddis wrote a book we all enjoyed called All Involved. He has come back to the show to tell us what we should be reading next. Ryan, welcome back to the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks for having me. What's the book? Southland by Nina Revoir. It's... Friend of the show? Friend of the show. (laughs) (laughs) It's just such a wonderful crime story, but also just an incredibly layered, delicate take on the diversity of Los Angeles, how things happen the way they happen, and certainly a very difficult and painful era in in and around 65 Watts riots, but also she jumps to Japanese American internment camps. You know, she jumps forward into kind of the legacy of these things in the nineties. And it's just so beautifully done. And and her prose is uh, honestly some of the best I've, I've read, not just about Los Angeles, but period. So it's a, it's a really easy recommendation from me. It's a historical novel, and yet it, it breaks the usual form of the historical mm-hmm. novel by going backwards and forwards, as yep. you say. Right? Yeah. She plays with time in a really, in, in a beautiful way. I think it aids suspense, and it still pushes the narrative forward, which is nice. All right. The book is Southland by Nina Revoir. Ryan Gaddis, author of All Involved. Thanks for coming back on the show. 
Thanks. And thanks for the recommendation. <laughs> My pleasure. That was the author of All Involved, Ryan Gaddis, with a book recommendation. Now, let's go back to our interview with Jack Miles, the editor of the Norton Anthology of World Religions. This is such a massive project. It's a lot larger than the Norton Anthology of Poetry. American Literature, let's yes, say. It, it is. Right? It's, a, it's a very large project, and you had the help of major scholars in, in each of these religious fields. I was wondering, I made a study myself of literary anthologies over time, and I'm interested in the way they, you know, from starting in the 19th century in America, the way they've changed over over time. Is there a precursor to this kind of text, or is this sui generis? There isn't anything recent, and uh, Roby Harrington, being an astute publisher, was careful to have done due diligence before he sank so much money into the preparation of, uh, of this work. There is a distant uh, precursor in the 18th century in a work called The Religious Customs of the Entire World, mm. produced, by, produced in Holland by two dissident or free-thinking Frenchmen, one of whom was an engraver, and the other very little known, a Huguenot from Provence, who had fled the Catholic regime in France to uh, Amsterdam. Uh, produced this uh, major and illustrated anthology, which tried to give this conspectus of all the religions of the world. It stayed in print for many years, I mean, really for centuries, much bolderized, uh, much pirated, much condensed and repackaged and pirated. But it began this uh, general attempt of trying to see the religious world whole. Hmm. Did it have scripture in it as well as... Discussion. It wasn't. No, it wasn't really what we are, and that's as I should. I should have made that clear. It was not an anthology of texts because mm-hmm. at the time that it was produced, Sanskrit had not even been deciphered. Oh right, uh-huh. uh, and Arabic was rarely known. Chinese still uh, not a language readily understood by Westerners, much less a language from which major translations of uh, Lao Tzu or Confucius had yet been made. Mm-hmm. All that essentially came about only in the 19th century. So uh, all of the uh, scholarship, partly the result of colonialism, of course, that uh, that took place in the 18th and 19th century, the earlier part of the 20th century, made possible this anthology, which is almost in its entirety the republication of translated original texts mm-hmm. that were there, but really practically inaccessible. You know, you could find them in the very best university libraries, the New York Public Library, but you couldn't find them in your local branch library or probably even in your college library. And many scholars who are teaching the subject needed help as well. Hmm. So that's what we have done. You know, we have gone to experts who have digested what has already been published, presented it in a form usable by students, and by determined laymen, I say determined, I, I just really mean interested <laughs> Norton but, makes it very easy for you. Any odd term is explained right on the page. Mm-hmm. You never have to flip to a note at the back. Pronouncing uh, glossaries, timelines, maps, you know. And the book is available in separate volumes as well, right? Um, it is now available in a six-volume paperback edition. Each volume, I'm unhappy to say, costs $49. I think they should cut that by... A third, at least, maybe a half. 
With a project of this size, I mean, how many years of your life did you preside over the making of this project? Seven and a half uh, years, I would say. Biblical. Uh, um, yes, biblical. <laughs> <laughs> um, I assume like there were times when you were like, oh, I cannot wait till this is done with this. Maybe, maybe not. But, but now that you're done with it, do you feel free of it? Or is it tentacles will always be part of you? Uh, is that a difficult seven years? Uh, there were dark hours. Uh, yes, four of my choices were totally problem-free and wonderfully gratifying. Uh, in two cases, there were some difficulties, and I won't go into that now. Every so often, something happens to draw me back into it, usually in a, in a rather interesting way like today's conversation. Actually, at the moment in my last year before retirement from the University of California, Irvine, and I happen uh, just lately to have been rereading Whitman, and I've decided that my my retirement motto would be, I loaf and invite my soul. Yeah. <laughs> and so not the Norton anthology of not-so-major religions? <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, there are many religions that we did not anthologize, but we have prepared capsule anthologies of some of them that will be published online. So there will be a capsule anthology of Jainism, a capsule anthology of Sikhism, a capsule anthology of Iroquois religion because he wanted to have something from Native Americans, mm-hmm. a capsule anthology of internationalized Yoruba religion, which would be you know the religion of the Atlantic Rim mm-hmm. from West Africa to Rio to Trinidad to the Bronx, maybe one or two others. And that's an expandable category, so there could be others down the yeah. line. And why Iroquois? Isn't Hopi the most famous uh, religion? Uh, the, I spoke to a Native American religion scholar, and mm. it turns out that if, if you're anthologizing texts, mm. the Iroquois offer you a richer amalgam of texts that they had a hand in producing, mm. as opposed to things that were transcribed by an anthropologist. I see. Interesting. When you approach a subject like this, which is such a vast and awesome subject, and you've spent your whole life studying it, does it ultimately become a day at the office to you, or do you, at the end of it, retain the sense of awe that led you in in the first place? Many days are days at the office, and then unexpectedly uh, something becomes quite other than that and and brings you back to what drew you in. Could uh, you give an example of that? Yes, it would be a Buddhist example. There's uh, one of the texts, uh, early uh, texts of the Buddha, is a kind of ecstatic text in which he says the roof beam is broken and cannot be repaired. And what, what he means is that he has come to the end, uh, take it at least, of normal understanding and knows that uh, he will never attempt to uh, reconstruct ordinary intelligence as his path to enlightenment. It comes in a different way. I found a powerful honesty there and also a kind of joy at the same time that there was a kind of defeat, you know, and the the blend of those three unlikely emotions in the same instant was, was very affecting. You may know more than any other person in the world about why men believe what they believe and why they need to believe, mm-hmm. let's just say. Does this help you at all psychologically in dealing with other people in personal matters, like understanding, you know, why the belief is so fierce and, you know, when you have to manipulate people, not that you would ever manipulate anyone. It's like if you have to deal with people. Sure. I mean, I would say if there weren't some such payoff possible from the study of, uh, of religions, why would one undertake it? It is, in fact, in the hope 
that the users of this book will be better equipped to deal with practitioners and believers in religions other than their own, that we've produced it. It does equip you to proceed forward with a greater uh, sympathy, a larger spirited kind of general forgiveness, a recognition that, like the Buddha himself, no one makes it through this life on reason alone. Anyone who tried to determine whom to marry on reason alone would never get there, you know, would he or she. Finally, there's a leap. And people make this leap in varying ways. They get into varying kinds of trouble. But if you recognize that you are a man or a woman facing the same kinds of challenge and coping as best you can with materials that were available to you just like they are in, in the comparable situation, then you, you can be gentle with them and you can also learn from them and learn about yourself and how you, how you may be coping in your own way. That makes me think that you talked earlier about this earlier anthology written mm-hmm. by the Huguenot and the, the Freethinkers. Right. Um, there's something fundamentally secular about a project in which all the world's religions are kind of displayed and discussed. Mm-hmm. It is a kind of post yes right post religious yes view, this is right? this is a book produced by academics you know for use in schools and for mm-hmm. use in learners and there's there's no religious or commitment required to make full untrammeled use of it right and yet you remain uh, yourself a believer you're, you're mm-hmm. you've, you've not left religion behind to do this secular project you're like Whitman you are large, you contain multitudes. Yes. <laughs> so it makes sense. Do you ever feel a kind of tug between belief and the project? I wish I had the text in front of me. I would quote Herbert Fingeret, no, it's someone else toward the end, who says that uh, we are in a condition in which we must make, as it were, a naive commitment to the religion that we are practicing at the same time that we have a sophisticated awareness that all such commitment is naive in a way. Mm. And I would also stress practice, which we do stress uh, in the work, and belief almost as on the list of available practices. Uh. I say that there's a difference between monotheism, which is a belief, and Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, you know, which is the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one sung out in a synagogue, that's a practice. That's really mm. not a belief. And the power of the Hebrew words, uh, when heard, it has its effect at the level of practice rather than uh, than belief. And everyone is going to be engaging in some set of practices as a way of getting past the limitations of the mind. If you're not doing that by belonging to a particular group with a creed and a weekly service, you're doing it in some other way. No one lives an entirely rational life. Lord knows I don't. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in, Jack, and oh, talking it's a to pleasure. us. It's about... a great, great pleasure. Thank you for having me. But yeah, the work is the Norton Anthology of Religion. Jack Miles, it was a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks to Alan Minsky, who, unlike Jerry Gorin, is no one's moral conscience. Thanks to our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orellano. 
Thanks to the czar of scheduling, Ashley Bean. Thanks to associate producer, Jim Lane. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. For Seth Greenland and the absent Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is the LARB Radio Hour, and we will see you next week. 